It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and thank you for downloading the latest edition of the Political Party podcast. This one featuring John Burko, Speaker of the House of Commons, who was absolutely wonderful and everything that you would expect from him. He was intelligent, insightful, witty, charming... Um, strong-headed, just fantastic all round. I've been an admirer of him since he's gone from Michael Martin as the Speaker of the House. And although, um, as with every politician, he, he may have his harsh critics, I think on the whole, people absolutely love him. And I, I, from the sense I get from most MPs is that he's very popular. And uh, I love watching him on telly. I think he has added something extra to the House of Commons. He's certainly made the government more accountable. He's strengthened the rights of backbench MPs. And as a result, the public to hold the government to account. And quite apart from that, despite the fact that uh, when he presides over Prime Minister's Question Time, he uh, asserts that the public hate to see um, the rowdiness, something I've always been in favour of, um, John himself helps contribute um, to the wonderful spectacle that is Prime Minister's Questions every Wednesday. It was a real honour to have him come and do the show. And his um, personality is just so refreshing. He's got a great attitude towards politics. And it's interesting as well, not just talking to him about his time as Speaker, although, of course, that is the main focal point of the interview, but the political journey that he's been on. When I first started... Um, observing politics, he was certainly felt like on the right of the Conservative Party and has arguably sort of moved away from that position. So he's just a, a, an absolutely top bloke and I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. Oh, thank you very much. Hello. Hello. Oh. Oh. <laughs> a little too much, but thank you very much. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, give me a shift. You've been to the political party before? Yay! Excellent. Welcome back. Give me a shift. This is your first time. Yay! Oh, excellent. Welcome, newcomers. We've got a fantastic guest tonight. Uh, it's been quite a while since our last one at the end of November, where I don't know if anyone was here for November. We had <laughs> rising star Tony Blair uh, <laughs> on the show. Uh, and he got quite a lot of news coverage. That was cool. So uh, thank you if you came to that. And uh, it's just because there's been a lot of stuff sort of trawl over since that show, really. Most of all, uh, it seems in Simon Danchuk's phone. Uh, I don't know if people are familiar with Simon Danchuk. He's a Northern Labour MP who um, usually campaigns on behalf of uh, abuse victims and now has been sexting uh, constituents of his. Now, are people familiar with this story? Well, I, I first discovered it on Newsnight, where, you know, they do that thing at the start of Newsnight where they play the theme tune and then they cut in with sort of talking heads about the things that agree on that night. So it said, tonight on Newsnight, and it was just Simon Danchuk going, what can I say? I like young women. What the fuck's all episode of Newsnight is this? Don't get me started on threesomes. Should have seen a sister. Incredible. Incredible attitude, Danchuk. Can I say this? Well, I... Some of the texts 
So this girl was 17 when she was, there was sex with each other, and now she's 18. She's a dominatrix uh, who apparently wants a career in politics. <laughs> um, so we used to walk in all over people for money, so I'm sure there may, may well be an entrance for her, so to speak. But um, I've got some of the sexts. I don't know if people have seen them. Uh, people who read the Daily Mail, or indeed the Daily Mail website, which I imagine at some point is most of the men in the audience. Um, so some of these, the, what's interesting about these sexes? She's sort of giving him the, come on, now I don't know whether she's done this on purpose, trying to entrap him or whatever. She's 17 at the time, it's definitely out of order. But his answers are so funny and so bad that they deserve to be read out for the purposes of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one we see is her, Safina, saying, I'm quite turned on thinking about it. Now, he replies, she's 17, right? He is, Dan, she's got me, what, 40-odd from the North? Played talking northern fella, right? He just replies, and this is so tragic. God, I'm horny. <laughs> There's something really sad about that, isn't there? Oh, it's almost like he was going to say that anyway. <laughs> oh, God, I'm horny. It's a good job you texted, love. Crikey. <laughs> Fucking 30 degrees on here, I'm in my underpants. Christ. I mean, to be honest, to be fair to her, good honour for getting a reply out of her MP that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> He's nothing not if not an attentive local member, right? <laughs> now, there's a bit here where she definitely writes, well, we're presuming it's something explicit, because she, when it's shown on the Daily Mail website, part of the text is redacted, so it says this, good, that was my intention. Another thought that just popped into my head of you, and then all this is blurred out, and then it just finishes, moaning your name. <laughs> Now, I'm presuming that it's something lewd rather than that just... Another thought that just popped into my head was of you cleaning the downstairs toilet, forgetting you to buy a plunger and just moaning your name. Oh, Simon, Simon. Um, now, this is where it gets even more raunchy. He says, I've a good mind to discipline... I've a good mind to discipline you for that. I don't know why he sounds like John Richardson, but <laughs> for the purposes of this, I think I have, a good time, I have a good mind to discipline you for that comment. Why don't you come to Spain with me? I'm still working. Now, what I really... <laughs> yeah, yeah, working, working. Um, what frustrates me about this is it's then followed up with three emojis. I don't know if people know what emojis are. They're basically just facial expressions you can text. But from an MP, it looks a bit... He's, he's put three sweaty ones on there and then a smiley face. <laughs> I don't think it's that sort of work, Simon. Um, and then this, well, this is quite... She sort of adds an air of tragedy to her proceedings. She just replies, please do, I'm unemployed. <laughs> Oh, fucking Christ. And then this is... What's really funny about this is obviously she's sort of teasing him a bit and Simon's sort of gone along with it, but he's such a sad, horny... Ma and there's, there is no bigger fool than a horny male fool. You can convince a horny man to do anything. It's such a desperate state that men occasionally find themselves in. They will believe anything you tell them. <laughs> he just can't... He can't get over the fact that she wants to do something. But he, he, can't, he can't do with the flirting anymore, Dan Chuck. He just wants it clean in black and white. He's put, so basically, you want me to spank you. <laughs> he's, done, he's done with the flirting. Right, just get down to brass tacks, right? <laughs> Let's talk straight here. But uh, good on him. I thought it was hilarious. Crispin Blunt, by the way, there have been a lot of revelations about MPs' private lives. Crispin Blunt, the Tory MP, um, admitted last week that he takes poppers... Mm. If you, it sounded like a noise of approval, if anything. I've used poppers. Uh, you just sort of smell them and then they make you giggle for a bit. But 
the reason Christopher Wilton uses them, as he told the House of Commons, is that it affects the gay community because gay men use them because one of the side effects is that they loosen your <laughs> sphincter. Right, now this, is, this was said in the House of Commons. I mean, it's just a fact of life. I haven't got a problem with it, it's fine. But when you see someone say that in Parliament, you're like, what do you expect the poor minister to do in response to that. Well, thank you very much for the Honourable Member for raising that. Of course, I'm very aware of the great work that many people who take poppers do. And <laughs> poppers itself has played a very big part in my private life. It was a gateway drug, actually, to me doing cocaine. So I'm very pleased. <laughs> it's all just quite odd to see, because a lot of people think, oh, it's a bit perverted. I just think it's, it's illegal, it's a bit of fun. But you think, once now MPs can say, oh, we can mention poppers in Parliament, that then opens the door for other things to be talked about. Reducing the VAT on lube. Will the Prime Minister consider reducing the VAT on lube? The, the British sex industry is in dire straits and lube helps to fill a very important hole in the <laughs> British economy. Uh, Michael Caine, the famous actor, has now come out in favour of Britain leaving the EU. Uh, Brexit, as they call it. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, we should do a trail poll here, if, if you don't mind. Give me a chance you think Britain should stay in the EU. <laughs> Give me a chance you think Britain should leave. Okay. Give me a cheer if you're undecided. <laughs> one woman and one ghost, by the sounds of this. <laughs> Relying on voters from the other side now to... Uh... Well, it's good. Do you think... Who did you cheer there as, as undecided? Was that right? Was, the, was it a lady just there? <laughs> Don't look mortified. It's fine. Do you think Michael Caine is the sort of guy that would help swing your vote? <laughs> no. uh, for you, uh, who did you vote for at the election, if you don't mind me asking? You are? Uh, conservative. <laughs> there really are shy Tories out there. I think I've just met the first one. Nice to meet you. What's your name? No, it's okay. I'm just being nice. It's not that sort of gig. It's fine. It's fine. Dan Chuck is outside. You're cool. <laughs> Lucy. Nice to meet you, Lucy. Because it's interesting with the European thing, because if you'd have said UKIP, I'd have presumed you'd have been out, maybe Labour, presumed you were in and stuff like that. But obviously the Tories are the most divided on it. What do you think is the issue that all... Help make your mind up. Is there only one thing that you think will be at the centre of it? I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's okay. You're a real don't know. That's cool. I think you're sort of. I think in two months, I think the prime minister's sort of in your camp at the moment. So I think. <laughs> If anything, you're summing up what's going on at the heart of government. But it's just quite interesting now that the campaigns will use celebrities. You think Michael Caine's quite cool, but he's sort of <laughs> sort of passed it now, any Michael Caine. To be well, that's no disrespect to him, but like as a, as a major figure, you think what's he going to contribute? They could use him for trailers, I suppose. Rework some of his classic lines. You're a big man, but you're out of shape. What are you? You're some sort of gravy-trained Brussels bureaucrat. <laughs> Did you know? Membership in the EU costs the British economy 55 million quid a day. Not a lot of people know that. <laughs> My personal favourite, Master Bruce. I'm sorry, but the Batmobile... <laughs> He's out of action today. We had to import cheap foreign labour. They put their steering wheel on the wrong bloody side. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, Labour's general election uh, expenses were revealed this week. I don't know if you saw some of the fine detail of this. The Edstone, by the way, turns out it cost eight grand. <laughs> I know, all the things you could have bought with eight grand. In fact, point number six on the Edstone was homes to buy. Eight grand is actually the limit that gets you a minimum deposit under the government's homes-to-buy scheme. That is a fact. 
The uh, chicken suits they use to chase uh, opposition candidates around cost 600 quid. It must be the only party who buys organic chicken suits to follow <laughs> their opponents around with. My favourite cost was four grand, over four grand, to put the pink lettering onto Harriet Harman's Labour van for women. I know. Imagine all the makeup they could have bought. <laughs> we make these videos as well now. I love the New Year video. Jeremy Corbyn's New Year video. Right, you've got to go on YouTube and watch Jeremy Corbyn's weekly videos. He makes a weekly video when he can remember. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> And it's usually him, sort of. He starts breezy, but goes grumpy no matter what is going on. And no word of a lie, just wait, because he's sort of got a grumpometer. He's usually about a minute in before he gets a little bit ratty, Corbin. His New Year message, he gets ratty immediately. I'm not lying, this is word for word what he says. He goes, well, a a happy New Year, but it it wasn't a very happy New Year, was it, for the people that got flooded? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what? Just hold on a second, Jeremy. At least sort of have some tidings for the family or something like that. There's a great bit anyway, because the floods actually were caused by massive rainfall. (laughs) (laughs) In Mr. Met Office, 1989. (laughs) Cameron asked some... Oh, Cameron, I'll tell you what's odd about Cameron. He did it today with this bunch of migrants. Occasionally, he just says things that... I mean, that was quite aggressive, I thought, what he said today. Usually, actually, he can be a little bit creepy. And on his New Year message, he starts off again, I just want to wish everyone a happy 2015. You know, Britain is made up of millions of people who get up early. What is it he says? That's it. He goes, Britain is made up of millions of decent, reasonable people who get up early. The reasonable bit sort of stands out a bit, doesn't it? It's kind of like, are you trying to chat me up, mate? Lovely, reasonable guys, like yourself, who get up early. Not like those wasters who lie in sniffing poppers. Looking <laughs> <laughs> crisp and blunt. My favourite, my favourite. I mean, I love a good parliamentary heckle. And uh, I don't know if you follow some of the people that have been on this show before, but Tim Lawton is one of my favourite guests. Uh, he, was, he was on about sort of just two and a half years ago, Tim. But he heckles Corbyn a lot. And he got in with an absolute perler. You know when Tim Peake went into space to join the International Space Station? I don't know if you saw this. But Jeremy Corbyn goes, and of course, we'd like to associate our warm wishes uh, and, and send those to Tim Peake, even though he's not on this planet at this time. And Tim Lawton just went, that makes two of you. <laughs> <laughs> you can't leave the door open like that. <laughs> Fucking incredible. Um, now... The big news, I don't know if you've seen this, this, this Beckett report that Labour have brought out, that's like their proper um, assessment of why they lost. Now, the big story is, firstly, they weren't going to publish it, and now they've published it. And the woman who did the polling for it said, it's a total whitewash. It does not at all reflect what the British public was saying to us about why Labour lost. Now, I've got both copies. Uh, I've, got the, I've got the Labour report. You can get these online. Um, I'm not sure if you're allowed to. So just tweet me and I'll DM you the link. Uh, now, it is amazing how much these contrast. I'm just going to take you through. So the first one is learning the lessons from defeat task force report. Horrible name for a task force, that, innit? Who wants to be on the, <laughs> who wants to be on the learning lessons from defeat task force? I don't know. Ed's not answering his phone. I don't know where he is. <laughs> I'll just take you through some of these, because it is fascinating. Like, I won't go into too much detail, but you can see where bits have been altered. So Ed Miliband apparently was allowed a copy of this before it was published. You might have heard about this, and apparently made key changes. Now, I'll, I'll take you through the Labour one, and then I'll take you through the polling one, and you see if you can sort of spot some of the differences. So, 
So the, some of the first bits, I'll, I'll only read out the sort of comical bits because they're, they're, they're well, they're, they're funny. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a great bit here. Uh, where are we? Where are we? Oh, shit. Hold on. You can see I've made notes on it, though. Um, oh, my word. I love this. I love this as a justification for an argument. This is an official Labour Party document. Over the period 2010 to 2015, what the polls did consistently show was, when asked if, could this man be Prime Minister, David Cameron was rated above Ed Miliband. Right, wait for their justification. Since David Cameron actually was Prime Minister, this response is probably less than surprising. <laughs> not good enough. Yeah, I figured out why we lost. Cameron was actually Prime Minister at the time. <laughs> Fucking uphill struggle, wasn't it? Incredible. That is incredible. Right, I, I wonder if this is a line that, well, I think it's worth as well, whenever we read out these lines, thinking about which ones Ed may or may not have put in himself. Ed Miliband courageously took on the public concerns <laughs> that led to the Leven Leveson inquiry. Elements in the news media seem, still seem determined to try to destroy him. <laughs> oh, this bit isn't funny, but it's so sad because for me it goes to the core of what the problem is. Some new Labour lessons were still certainly valuable. For example, the need for a clear and consistent vision and political narrative combined with a consistent and persistent approach to repetition and rebuttal. That seemed to have been taken on board more by her opponents rather than us. Fucking... <laughs> 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 oh, my word. I mean, this, this is under the heading policy development. Uh, talk about padding. Many thoughtful and constructive speeches were made in the House of Commons, around the country, to major organisations such as the CBI and at party conferences. <laughs> Why is that in there? Sounds like a sort of school kids report, doesn't it? And at the end of the day, after my speech, the big man said we could all have ice cream. <laughs> His name was Simon Danchuk, and he's been texting me ever since. <laughs> oh, my God. Right, where to go on here? Oh, my word. This, this again gets to the heart of it. <clears throat> In addition, whilst our policy agenda was well-constructed, it was not always easy to communicate. <laughs> In other words, we've been talking shit for five years. <laughs> This is incredible. Oh, here we are. This has got to be. I wonder if this is a line Ed Miliband may have added in about himself. In his budget response, Ed Miliband made the best such speech that many long-serving parliamentarians could remember. <laughs> the best speech that many long-serving parliamentarians could remember. Oh, this is incredible. This is under possible turning points and how Labour might have nicked it from the Tories. That's putting this down as a personal achievement. At the Paralympics, George Osborne was booed by the crowd. <laughs> you can't put that on the whiteboard, mate. That doesn't count as a... Yeah, we've done that. Yeah, we've actioned that. Yeah, and some kids told that Cameron had fucked a pig, so I don't know why that's not in there. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I think that might be the last one from that. Oh, no, there's one more here. <clears throat> Again. Let's just see if Ed Miliband might have inserted this in as a, as a, as a the short campaign. Ed Miliband performed very well during the campaign. For the first, when for the first time the public had more of an opportunity to see Ed Miliband for himself, his standing markedly improved. I think it's worth bearing that phrase in mind. By the way, uh, there was an early polling done by uh, Lord Ashcroft early in the um, Parliament. And the one word that most voters apparently associated with Ed Miliband was tool. <laughs> So let's see if by the end of the Parliament, his standing had markedly improved. Now this... <coughs> I think you can get this on the ITV website. This is called Emerging from the Dark. And I read this on the tube home 
pissing myself laughing because this is brutal. So they did focus groups in areas where Labour had lost, including Edinburgh, Glasgow, and I think Watford, um, and some of these. So the top line on this is Labour negatives. Just bear in mind some of the tone of the stuff you've just heard. Labour negatives are deep and powerful. It is downtrodden and eager to please, personified by Ed Miliband, a weak and bumbling leader. (laughs) His standing markedly improved. Some of the stuff from Scotland's amazing as well. I love this. Just as an insight into swing voters' minds, the headline on this is, we trust the Tories to make the right decision as long as the cuts aren't too close to home. (laughs) That's got it in it. In short, I don't give a fuck about anyone else. (laughs) But I'm going to pretend that I do. Uh, So this is Scottish swing voters. Most had hoped for a hung parliament, which would have given Scotland more power. They blame this on the English, not Scottish voters. (laughs) (laughs) who deserted Labour en masse. The English laws, I love this. This is a male guy from Edinburgh. If people would have voted Labour in England, there could have been a potential coalition. It was the loss of the Labour vote in England that resulted in a Conservative majority. Incredible. Now, just bear that phrase in mind. Ed Miliband's standing had markedly improved. Guy from Nuneaton. Ed Miliband had the appeal of a potato. <laughs> No doubt Margaret Beckett would say, well, that means he's very versatile. And uh, <laughs> one guy's just put, Ed Miliband is a dork. His standing markedly improved. <laughs> Bear that in mind. Oh, my God. This slide is my favourite. I could have written this slide. This is incredible. This contrast. So they're talking about swing voters in England and Scotland. And can they remember the last time they voted Labour? And the headline is, this contrasts with the last time they voted Labour, which they remember vividly. In England, they recall a halcyon era. Britain was great. Labour captured the public mood, as did Tony Blair. A young, in-touch family man, a different kind of politician. And then no word of a lie, some guy from Watford's just put, it was to do with the times back then. There was oasis and blur. The country was cool. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Now this, there is, there's the, what really comes out is the slight rivalry between Scottish and English voters swing in swing seats here. And this, I think this is the last one. Yeah, yeah, this is so funny because there's this sort of small differences, but on the whole, really, there's not that much difference. But this is great. One of the, one of the um, headlines is, Scotland too was enthralled to Labour in 1997, but they were let down much more quickly, deeply critical of Blair's record, though much less so of Gordon Brown's. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, he was all right. Aye, aye, aye. He was good. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, um, hope you enjoyed the presentation. Uh, I will be taking questions at the end. If I could have the handouts back, please. Yeah. OK, uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, as always, you've been a, a fantastic audience. We have a guest that I've been desperate to interview on this show for many a time. I've been an admirer of his for many years. We'll have a quick break, have a drink, charge your glasses, and we're joined in the second half by a true political titan. Uh, I'll see you in a bit. Enjoy the uh, enjoy the break. Cheers. Unelected, unelected. There's a key difference, although it'll never be tested. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, um, as always, uh, as you know, I try and bring you the very best guests in the political world, and tonight is no exception. And I think tonight, usually we, we applaud people, and I hope you'll do that. But I think, given the guests that we have tonight, do people know how to make the noises in the House of Commons? <laughs> Can everyone just do a sort of. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
let's make it. Let's do one of those to make it really rowdy. Uh, and please welcome the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Is that... <laughs> that is a real connoisseur's... That's a real Tory one, that, isn't it, then? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, Would that be loud enough, John, for you to have brought the place to order in Parliament? Oh, no, a bit louder. Should we see how loud do we have to go? Definitely loud enough. <laughs> um, it gets very rowdy in there, doesn't it? It, it, it got rowdy in there today, uh, as I watched, as I'm sure many people here did. Do you actually quite like the rowdiness of it? Well, I would prefer it to be noisy than totally quiet. You know, we're not an Oxford Union debating society, although actually been doing it that <laughs> pretty raucous as well. But Parliament's never been made up of a group of Trappist monks, so. I think although in some respects it's worse than it was in the past, it's quite important not to descend into reaction and to behave as though, or to comment as though, and to judge as though it's worse than ever and it used to be perfect. Because that, frankly, is nonsense. I mean, Disraeli was shouted down the first time he tried to speak in Parliament. Churchill was left having to abandon a speech. He was treated with such mockery and derogatory comment and so on, and that was a hell of a long time ago. So, I mean, I think it's always been pretty noisy. Some people say that it is a bit worse than it was, and I would prefer that the exchanges were conducted at a lower decibel level. (laughs) But is a bit of noise a bad thing? No, I think the problem arises when there is orchestrated barracking on such a scale, at such a volume, and with such an intensity and repetitive quality that is basically designed to stop a person being heard. You know, and that can't, in my view, be right. In other words, when the decibel level causes deep purple, which I think I'm right to say was the loudest bad in the world in the 1970s to do, <laughs> regardless of positively sotto voce, well, then, in my opinion, you know, and you basically take your choice if you disagree, so be it, we're spray-painting our shop window. Because the fact is that most people don't see or hear most of what goes on in Parliament. They don't observe mm. serious, mature, reflective, non-partisan debates about mental health, and they don't observe the penetrating inquiries by a select committee. In a committee I thought you were going down the Simon Danchuk route there when you started talking. <laughs> <laughs> what they see in any of the Prime Minister's questions, a huge multiple. Yeah, no, no, I will avoid the Danchuk discussion. <laughs> so that's what they see in here, and if the decibel level is excessive and they think, well, you know, this is childish, yeah. well, then it obviously colours very unfavourably their view of Parliament. And I do get quite a lot of letters complaining about it. But, dare I say, there is a middle way. Yeah. There's a middle way between having the most unbearable cacophony and pandemonium on the one hand and having, as I say, a kind of Trappist monk silence yeah. on the other, which then would cause people to say, oh, well, it's incredibly boring and it's not lifelike. And after all, the arguments are real. It's not contrived. I mean, people get very angry <laughs> on behalf of constituents, <laughs> on behalf of vulnerable people, on behalf of their own principles. And so, you know, whatever you think of it, I think it is authentic. And so 
I suppose, in a sense, I've got a rather nuanced view of yeah. it. And that never plays well, when I say so, Matt, with the media, because the media, of course, like great Manichaean divides between the forces of good and the forces of evil, right and wrong, you know, black and white and so on. And so they want your opinion to be either definitively for something or totally against it. And my view is, Prime Minister's questions is a good thing. I've lost count of the number of people I've met around the world who say we wish our Prime Minister had to come each week to answer questions. So I don't think we should throw the baby out of the bathwater and get rid of it. And in any case, that is simply not going to happen. But I think that it could be conducted in some seemingly fashion. So when you talk about orchestrated heckling, does that mean that there are groups that behave in a particular way, specific MPs that have specific heckles? <laughs> there is one <laughs> member on the opposition benches <laughs> who sits on the front bench, who was an opposition whip, but he's now an opposition spokesperson. And he does have a particular heckle, which is to call out shocking. <laughs> it's a disgrace and I'm quite worried on his behalf as I have told him that on the day of his birthday his wife wishes him a happy birthday he will probably instinctively react shocking because <laughs> you, you have to deal with a lot of these volatile characters who do get a little bit carried away at times um, and some of your put downs are quite legendary are they all ad-libbed or do you have some that you think Females off today, I'm going to say that to No, I'm afraid they are all ad-libbed. So, you know, if you think they're not very good, I've never claimed to be particularly good at repartee. I enjoy Brilliant. communication. I like public speaking. I think that's fun and stimulating both to talk to and hear from people. I've never claimed to be good at repartee. I'm not one of those people who can think off the top of my head of some brilliant rejoinder. It's the sort of thing that I would think of half an hour later, if at all. But no, they are spontaneous. Do I prepare lines? No. I mean, to be honest, there's quite enough to do in the job. I <laughs> <laughs> really need to spend time preparing lines, and I just feel, no, they go in the chamber, you sit there, you try on the whole not to interrupt too much, because a bit like the referee of a football match, you know, you should be encouraging the free flow of play as far as possible. Yeah. But sometimes you just have to punctuate the proceedings with an observation or some sort of... Put down. I mean, you mentioned Tim Lawton. Uh, you know, Tim Lawton, you know, is a very, very good parliamentarian. Yeah. You know, I did at the time that he had responsibility within government for children. Think it perfectly reasonable when he was making an excessive noise at Prime Minister's question to say to him, Mr. Lawton, simply because you are Minister for Children doesn't require you to behave. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite one that you said to him was when he shouted out something, and you, you, you bollocked him for it, and I, I think he said. You said, oh, that was it. His, his defence was, you asked him to be quiet, and he just went, it's funny. <laughs> and, he went, <laughs> and he went, no, it's not funny, Mr Lawton. Only in your head is it funny. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that clip so many times. I did say that. <laughs> Do you ever watch clips of yourself on YouTube? No. Because there are, you, you should, because there are so many compilations of like, your best put-downs. Actually, I was really slow to see anything on YouTube at all, because I'm a very odd mix, of, truth be told, I'm neither proud nor ashamed of this, but I'm a very odd mix between someone who believes massively in modernisation in Parliament and wants to see how we can do things differently and better and in a more modern and up-to-date way, but personally I'm pretty old-fashioned in all sorts of ways. I acquired a mobile phone only in 2009, and that was because... My acquired? Best... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Simon Dunshock was selling it. It was. <laughs> Simon Dunshaw got to get rid of a pay-as-you-go phone on the quick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I rest my case. I made my own point. No, I bought one into it. My best mate in Parliament said to me, Julian Lewis, you know, I hope you don't mind what I'm about to say to you. I've known this guy, he's a very good friend, for 30 years, and whenever he says, you know, I hope you don't mind my saying, it's usually to be followed by some reproof or some criticism about my conduct or error of omission or commission or whatever. Anyway, he said to me, over the next few weeks, a number of us are going to be putting ourselves out very, very seriously on your behalf, you know, you see, you know, which is what Julian says, you know, you see, you know, to try to persuade colleagues to elect you as speaker. And quite frankly, it is going to be absolutely infuriating if you are wandering around the Palace of Westminster, not in your office, and your staff in the office have no idea where you are, and we are trying to contact you. So I would say to you that today you should go out, or better still, you should ask Sally to go out and buy for you a completely idiot-proof mobile. <laughs> and this nearly happened, and I've had, I now have an iPhone. I mean, I'm sort of right model. <laughs> I didn't look on things on YouTube at things at all. But I remember on one occasion, I think it was Mary Cray. Yeah. Mary Cray saying to me, this was back in December 2010, she said, your row with Patrick McLaughlin. Patrick McLaughlin was the government chief whip at the time. I had rather an abrasive exchange with him late at night in the chamber. And uh, Patrick, well, by the way, on the matter in question, was perfectly entitled to his view, but he did suffer from the material disadvantage of being wrong. <laughs> 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 anyway, she said to me, it's gone viral. And I went back to my office and I was Sadie, who worked for me then and works for me now. Well, you know, what does that mean? She said, well, you know, it's a big hit. Yeah. Don't ask Simon Dunshock. It means... <laughs> my God. Well, they are. They, these things go, go viral and they... Um, I have what, YouTube's a great place to watch compilations of some of your put-downs and some of your rows. Uh, I think the, some of the Simon Burns exchanges are on there. <laughs> I think you and he have a... I mean, it must be difficult because you've got to be impartial, but then there are people that you're going to get more annoyed by. Does, does it feel a bit like being a teacher? Can you equate it to anything else outside well, of politics? Well, I prefer the analogy with the referee of a football match because the trouble is that if you say, well, the analogy or the comparison is with a head teacher, people will feel, and with some justification, that there is an element of censoriousness about it. And, you know, you don't want to be censorious. Most of the time, it's much better for you in the chair and for the House if things proceed smoothly. There may be some anger in the debate, but it doesn't involve the chair. There may be some humour, and it may involve the chair. But, you know, you don't, on the whole, want rancour and unpleasantness, and you don't want to be putting people down in an aggressive fashion, you know, like the worst of the old-fashioned head teachers. You don't want that at all, and you try to avoid it. You do have to be impartial, and I always say, well, the Speaker shouldn't have any friends or foes. You know, I may have friends in the House, in the sense they're people I've known for a very long time, but I would argue, and I think the evidence will prove, that they're not favoured in any way in terms of getting called into debate, if anything... <laughs> probably my dear friend Julian Lewis, 
has been slightly disadvantaged <laughs> over the years because I'm damned if I'm going to have some down market low musical fifth rate scribbler <laughs> saying, oh, well, of course, Burko favours his mate because his mate was best man at his wedding or whatever. So Julian has probably lost out very slightly. <laughs> he always observes a Chinese wall, you know, in our friendship. He never asks about things that involve being called in debates or whatever. He is very proper okay. about it. And I must say, you know, I appreciate that. But I mean, I don't bear grudges. I really don't bear grudges because life's too short. And in the end, it, I'm not sure I was like that as a kid. I think I sometimes <laughs> did bear grudges, but basically it diminishes you and it's corrosive. And so, you, you know, you have mentioned that I've had rows with people. I can't comment on what, and I'm not minded to comment on what other people think about me, or they may want to reserve a grudge or say they actively dislike me or they think I'm no good at what I do or whatever. That's up to them. But I don't bear a grudge against any parliamentary it's simply not worth it. Because that's, and I think, you know, I don't want to sound too sort of biased about it, but the Speaker should try to rise above that. And, you know, those who know me in the House know of many instances in which, you know, I have shown to people who've not been remotely friendly to me that I'm more than happy to a bit extend gross. the hand of friendship. Yeah. Because it, you're in a tricky position because you are an MP. You were considered to be for many years. Now you're technically a sort of independent in a, in a ceremonial role, if you like, but a very important role as speaker. So you're, you're still in the House of Commons where you've stood and made speeches yourself. Yes. But you're then refereeing something that you are still sort of a part of. Do you ever, obviously, your mind is sort of in the game, if you like. You're on the rules and, and in, in that regard. But you're still present at some huge moments in history and you're a major player in those moments in history. Do you ever sometimes watch a parliamentary debate and think, that is awful? Or what a stupid point to make. Or that was fucking brilliant. Or, you know, do, do you still have that internal monologue as a politician? Yes. I think that it would be almost a self-delusion on a fairly industrial scale as well as a, an unethical attempt to delude you, and almost like a flawed attempt to delude you, to suggest that you don't form any sort of opinion about a contribution that's being made. I mean, you would almost have to dehumanise yourself not to think something about what that person is saying or how he or she is saying it. So yes, I do, but it's not relevant to whether I call that person early, middle or late in the next debate, and I certainly wouldn't dream of allowing what I might think of a particular individual or his or her argument to influence a decision I've got to make about whether to select that person's amendment or new clause to a piece of legislation for debate and vote. I mean, when I stood for election as speaker, you know, you've got to understand that most of the time, not only do you lot not remotely think about such matters, why on earth should you, with all that you've got on in your lives, think about the speakership of the House of Commons? Well, some, some of us do, John. <laughs> <laughs> what a sad muppet you are. <laughs> <laughs> but, but even colleagues don't most of the time. And when I stood in 09, Nadine Doris, who was a very outspoken member of Parliament, was furiously opposed to me becoming Speaker. We were sitting on the same benches as Conservatives, but we hardly agreed about anything. And she very strongly disapproved of me for a variety of reasons. And one of the things that she said against me was, well, you know, John Burko can't possibly be speaker. It's not a credible proposition for him to be speaker. He can't be fair because he's expressed very strong views in favour of abortion. 
And, I mean, the way I would put it is that, you know, I had a historic track record of supporting a woman's right to choose, which I think is slightly different from saying, you know, I'm actively going around advocating abortion. <laughs> but, you know, in Nadine's mind, it made me unsuitable to be speaker because she said, you know, when it comes to selecting amendments to legislation and choosing who to call to speak in debate, he's going to be biased. And I remember, I think, this argument being put to me, not by Nadine, but by somebody else. And I said, well, that argument is flawed because whoever becomes Speaker will have been a Member of Parliament before and very likely a a party MP, because most MPs are party MPs. And in any case, will have expressed views and voted on all sorts of different subjects. The whole point about becoming Speaker is that you are supposed to cast aside all of your previous views, votes, decisions, opinions, and to operate as an impartial umpire. Now, to be fair to Nadine, and this speaks well of her, subsequently, some years later, the abortion issue arose, and she approached me about how she could table a new clause on the matter on a particular bill, and I advised her, as I would advise anybody, how to go about it and to consult the clerks for procedural correctness and so on, and I said, I'm not going to give you a a decision in advance, Nadine, nobody can expect us to do that, but when I've seen what you've tabled with what other people tabled, I'll make a fair judgment. I have to say to you, her new clause was perfectly orderly. That is to say, it was not technically deficient. It was perfectly... (laughs) It it, it was a healthy clause. It was a healthy clause in that sense. And so, you know, I said, yes, it should be selected for debate and vote. And she came up to me afterwards and said, oh, you know, I'm so grateful you were so fair. And I said, well, Nadine, to be honest, I always intended to be Back in '09, I just couldn't persuade you. And <laughs> Philip Davis is a Tory MP in Shipley. I went to his constituency recently to I regularly go to constituencies to speak to schools and so. Philip is he's a very blunt, outspoken, right-wing Conservative MP. He is the sort of person who tells it as he sees it, yeah. and he'll tell you what he thinks of you. And he said, "Could he see me back in 2009? Could he see me for a cup of coffee?" Yeah, because he wasn't intending to vote for me speaker but he wanted to explain why so I said yeah okay fine and we met in Port Palace House we had a cup of coffee together and he gave me all the reasons why he wouldn't vote for me the main one of which was he said John it's not that we disagree on political matters and you're very very left wing in the Tory party I'm very much on the right it's not that he said I just think you are too political you have very strong views and you will instinctively be intolerant of views that differ from your own and for that reason I just think you know it's not a runner and I'm not going to vote for you and about 18 months later he came up to me at a function and said could he have a word and I said yes and he said I was wrong you've been extremely fair so you know do you please everybody absolutely not I'm sure you can easily go out of here and find plenty of people who will say oh he's absolutely crap useless and and so on you know no person can be judging his or her own cause. It's not for me to say whether I'm a good speaker or not. I obviously think I could do the job, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. I've been re-elected twice since my initial election. But ultimately, you know, I have to be judged by other people. But I would argue that I'm fair. I may be flawed, I may be ineffective, I may be irritating, you might find my whole manner deeply disagreeable. But I am fair-minded. I'm trying to do the right thing. Well, I think that comes across as well. But you're also a massively entertaining part of Parliament, and I think... There was, there's, what, no, deliberately or accidentally? Well, that's for you to answer, I think. <laughs> I think it's... Um, we went to an era... I'm just going to move your microphone up a bit, John, because I oh, think correct. it's catching a bit, and I'm just worried about the podcast, because people mind about staying levels on those bloody forums. <laughs> if it, if, it, if it, you can hear it scratching on the shirt, just if you want to move your time, if that's all right. Does that sound OK? 
Is that right? Is that, could uh, you hear the sort of rustle? <laughs> um, we went through a period where we had Betty Boothroyd, who was this sort of big, vivid character, and people in the country said, oh, she's great, she really tells them off. And then we had Michael Martin, who sort of reluctantly would call the house to order, Order. Order. Absolutely. And he sort of presided also over the period where there was the expenses scandal and all stuff like that. And people sort of lost faith a bit in the comments, I think partly because, even though he was clearly a good guy, he wasn't doing it the right way. And then, bang, in comes Burko and it's all kicked off again. Like, it just feels like you made it such... It's, I think it's, there's an irony to the fact that... And you said there's a third way, uh, and you're right in terms of the tone of Prime Minister's question time. But you're part of that... It's wrong to call it a pantomime because it's so important because the Prime Minister's been held to account. But as a piece of entertainment, you're almost... You know, people are watching it, and I think people are divided. Actually, most people watch it rooting for you more than they would <laughs> Cameron or Corbyn. They're like, get in there and wallop somebody or something. I mean, do you, do you feel that a bit? Do you feel your role in that is... Obviously, you're there to, to keep the rules, but you think, well, this is Parliament. It is a theatre of sorts. There's a performance required on some sort of level. No. I don't actually think that <laughs> performances are required. I mean, I can see why you might think that. And, you know, it may be that if you've observed me, you think, gosh, you know, he does intervene quite a lot and he yeah. makes a lot of comments and therefore, you know, he's presumably trying to create an external impression. But actually, at the time that you're doing it, all you're thinking of, or certainly I can speak for myself only, all I'm thinking of is what will be the impact of this in the chamber. So if you're asking me, are you, John, sort of thinking of two audiences, the answer is no. I'm not thinking really of the audience outside, other than in the sense that if I sometimes say, order, I must say to the House, you know, we should have some regard to the way in which our proceedings are viewed by the people whose votes we'll be seeking in a few yeah. weeks' time. Well, then obviously, you know, that is directed at an appreciation of the electorate's disapproval of rowdy behaviour. Of course, that is a comment aimed not just at colleagues, but at the outside world as well. But most of the time, when I'm saying what I'm saying, I'm not saying it with a view to external impact. I'm saying it with a view to having an effect there and then. And actually, I know you all think I've monstrously, disgracefully, shamefully accused you of being a sad muppet. You'll probably now say... <laughs> I was really say, proud of that, by the way, but I didn't want to interrupt your flow. <laughs> You'll probably say the same to me now, because it will seem slightly odd or, if not arcane, slightly excessively fastidious. But as far as the speaker is concerned, quite an important criterion of whether the day's gone well is how many questions we get through. Okay? So I'm not really sitting there for one moment thinking, you know, what does the public think of that question or that answer? What I'm thinking of is that a lot of people want to take part, demand almost always exceeds supply. Far more people want to ask questions than there is time to accommodate. So for me, a good day is when we get through every question on the order paper, or when I'm able to call a lot more supplementary questioners. And a bad day, which might be my fault, or it might just be the fault of colleagues being very long-winded, is when we just don't get through that much. And you know, I have tried to say, you know, I don't want to be unkind, but I have tried to say to colleagues, you know, something like, well, <laughs> if the Honourable Gentleman could provide us the abridged rather than the war and peace version, that would be appreciated. <laughs> you know, today I said to a member whose question was rather long... Was, oh, the SNP? Yes, I, you know, I said something to the effect, you know, order 
whatever. I think we've got the gist of we the got the, Exactly. Thank you. I, I said we've got the gist of it. And I think, rather curious. What some of their uses? She regarded that as an incentive to develop her thesis. <laughs> so I, she's a very good member. She's made rather an impact soon. But I would say, on the whole, you have to be shorter, briefer at Prime Minister's questions than any other question time session because the House is keen to move on and a lot of people want to be called. And so the attention span is very limited. Yeah. But no, I said, you know, we've got the gist of it. And she seemed to regard that as an incentive to continue. So I said, well, I would, uh, that was a polite way of saying that the Honourable Lady has finished the <laughs> I mean, sometimes, I mean, I, I, definitely what you've done is, is made it, uh, getting through those questions isn't just the satisfaction of a tick list. That means more constituents are being represented in Parliament and ministers are being held to account. So it's a vital part of democracy in, in what you're doing there. It also does make it actually more entertaining to watch. It's sort of it's like 2020 cricket instead of county level. Yes. <laughs> It's a lot faster. There's more intensity to it. Um, but you, you have these exchanges, and one of my favourite ones was with uh, David Cameron, where he starts making a point about something a, a Labour person said, and you said, uh, I think you ask him to stop or whatever you're doing. He says, I haven't finished. He said, the promise can take it from me. He has finished. <laughs> <laughs> when, yes. you're, you know, when, you're, when you're getting head-to-head with the Prime Minister, is there any part Because obviously the Commons is your domain. Actually, in the Commons, you're probably more powerful than he is in that regard. In the hierarchy, it's your place more than it's his. Well, certainly the Speaker is the referee of parliamentary proceedings yeah. and the leading office holder in Parliament. So, for example, when we have a visitor to Parliament, the Speaker of the Commons and the Speaker of the Lords are in charge of the running of that occasion. So when President Obama came, you know, I took the lead in welcoming him, showing him yeah, around yeah. the Palace of Westminster and making the introductory speech. And but Cameron hated that, didn't he? Lord Speaker, <laughs> he said thank you. Well, I must admit I haven't asked the <laughs> for his view on that important matter. But, no, I mean, that's an occasion for the Speaker, it's true. And the centre-forward cannot also be the referee. Mm. And it's simply a matter of fact that in question-time exchanges, the Speaker is in charge, yes. I didn't in any sense mean, although some people chose to interpret it in these terms, to be discourteous to the Prime Minister or to try to point score. It wasn't that. Bear in mind that it happens there and then. It's instantaneous. There's a spontaneity about it. I didn't know that he was going to say what he said. Yeah, he course. didn't know how I was going to reply. You know, why did I react like that? Uh, also, we have a quite a simple concept in Parliament that... A question is put on a subject, and the answer should encompass, or at any rate, at least broadly relate to the question <laughs> that has been asked. Okay? Now, you're with me so far. <laughs> what is disorderly is for a minister to start speaking, particularly if he or she gives the indication of planning to do so at some length, on something totally unrelated, and in particular, if the minister, including the prime minister, decides to talk about the other party's policy mm. rather than his or her own. Ministers at the box, is actually quite a dry point, but it is an important constitutional point. Ministers at the dispatch box are there to answer for government policy. Now, look, there is a degree of latitude, okay? And the prime minister gets slightly more latitude and always has done under successive speakers than anybody else. And so, of course, up to a point... The Prime Minister will tend, successive Prime Ministers have tended to want to explain why their policy or approach is right, and they do so by comparison. 
referencing the other parties and why their policy is wrong. Yeah. But there are ways and means of doing it. And on one occasion, I remember Gordon Brown answering a question and then saying, Mr. Speaker, I now turn... This was after quite a comprehensive answer, for which we were, of course, immensely grateful. <laughs> <laughs> I now turn, Mr. Speaker, to the views of the Shadow Health Secretary. And Gordon started looking over at Andrew Lansley. Now, what was the problem with that? Well, colleagues, the, friends, the problem with that was that the Prime Minister was announcing in a very clear and rather explicit way that he intended to do what he is absolutely supposed not to do, which is to talk about the views or policies of the opposition. And so I'm afraid I said, oh, order, order. we're not going to go into that. And afterwards, Gordon Brown did say, well, why did you cut me off? And I said, well, because you were starting to talk about it. And you made it absolutely clear. <laughs> you sort of led with your chin. You, know, you made it absolutely clear you were about to talk about the policies of the other party. And I said, whereas, you know, there are ways of doing it. If a minister says, and let me make it clear, Mr. Speaker, it will not be the policy of this government to do X or Y or Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe you can get away with it. I think with David Cameron, if I remember rightly. <laughs> I think with David Cameron on that occasion, if I remember rightly, he wanted to quote from a book. <laughs> and it was a book, I think, if I'm wrong about it, the record shows I'm wrong, so but anyway, whatever it was, it was disorderly. But I think he wanted to quote from a book, and it was some, or a book or an article, and it was something to do with the failures of a Labour policy or the failure of a Labour election campaign or something of that sort. And so I, I said, David, I've got a copy you can have. <laughs> and that's when he said, he, he obviously thought this was a great punchline, and you know, I interrupted, which was obviously immensely aggravating from his point of view, and that's why he said, he, I've not finished. And I said, well, the Prime Minister can take it from me that he has finished. <laughs> you know, it, it may be that this cause modest irritation on his part, I don't know. But, but if you ask me, you know, was it something about which I lost any sleep uh, at that time, or have I done so since? Uh, the answer is no. I mean, there are things to, if I may say so, there are things to lose sleep about, you know. But they're not being told off in the chamber. I, I'm, I'm likely to have a less good night's sleep if my football team loses. Okay, you know, that's something to get worked up yeah. about. Being told off by the Prime Minister is not something to get worked up about. No, and he can't remember what football team he supports anyway. So. <laughs> well, I think, it's, I think it's Aston Villa. It is. But he thought it was West Ham a couple of months back. Yeah. Didn't he? You, you said it. <laughs> yeah. no, but I do know that I support Arsenal. Yeah. Okay. And although <laughs> I don't get Arsenal mixed up with Manchester United. No, good. Um, so it's worth getting yeah. upset. It's worth getting upset or losing a bit of sleep if Arsenal have a bad result. And if my tennis hero, and all my friends know I have a tennis hero, my all-time tennis hero is Roger Federer. I adore Federer. You know, if Federer loses, it spoils my day. So, and he's playing tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, so I hope he wins. So, if you've ever met Federer, you should invite him to your place. I have met him a couple of times, yes. Not in Parliament, but yes, I have met him a couple of times. Do you, do you, because obviously you've got the speaker's residence and you can use it for various things. Do you ever think, I'm just going to invite everyone I like round? <laughs> Get the Oasis boys round, or, you know. <laughs> quite important not to have. I have been privileged to meet lots of really interesting people, but it's quite important not to have delusions of grandeur and to imagine that anybody and everybody who, 
you admire and is a sort of rock star or the sporting equivalent is going to be interested in coming to speaker's house. <laughs> so no, I met Federer at the <laughs> I met him at the O2 a couple of times in successive years. And indeed I interviewed him at one point for the BBC Today programme. But I haven't invited wow. him to Parliament, although his, his manager came to Parliament with his family last year. He's a striking fellow, isn't he, Federer? I saw him play at Wimbledon this year. Very tall, I mean, physically impressive man. Let's <laughs> <laughs> put that on the... Me and Crispin Blunt were talking about it the other night. I just... <laughs> well, he's an amazing athlete. And <laughs> he's a tennis artist. He's a tennis artist who has no equal, in my view. So, when you're in the... What, something else I was going to ask you, because it's not all Prime Minister's question, Tom, obviously, there's various jobs in the role of Speaker. There was a debate the other week, and am I right to say it was Syria, where you stayed in the chair for a Herculean amount of time, something like eight hours, and people were very impressed with the sort of comments that, did you not need a toilet? And, <laughs> but someone said, well, the, the Speaker's chair has a commode in it. <laughs> so, the, I suppose the question is twofold. Has it... And did you? <laughs> no. And no. <laughs> Would have been odd if it was no and yes. <laughs> it did have a commode. It did used to have a commode. And I think I'm right in saying that this was in the era when there were no deputy speakers. There was just the speaker. And the speaker was expected basically to be in the chair throughout the time the House was sitting. And whether there was in those days any procedure whereby the Speaker could suspend the House, I don't know. But I gather even if that could happen, it either didn't or it didn't happen very often. So there was a commode and, you know, the curtain was pulled round and the Speaker would answer the call of nature. <laughs> there is no longer such a facility and therefore you'll be, as you rightly say, very relieved to know that I didn't. <laughs> but no, I did spend 11 hours, 24 minutes. Whoa in the chamber without a break. Again, I didn't actually start out, Matt, thinking, well, let's do this. Let's break the record. <laughs> break the record. No, I didn't. I have no idea what the record previously... I've various times I've been in the chair for <laughs> seven hours without a break and so on. No, what happened was that I thought the day before, you know, this is a really big and important debate. People have got very strong views on both sides of the argument in favour of military action on Syria and against. And if I can... I'm going to try to stay there for the duration because it's a mark of respect to the House. So I said to the Deputy Speakers, you know, I will only need one of you to be on standby in case you're needed, but I'm going to try to chair the debate myself from start to finish. I didn't commit to doing so. How did I manage to do so? Well, I had a cooked breakfast before going in the chair. Proceedings started that day at 11.30. We went straight into the debate. I had a cooked breakfast, which I don't normally have, at 9.30. And I did not have orange juice or coffee. As far as you're remotely interested in my personal habits, (laughs) (laughs) might give you a bit of the colour if I told you what I had and what I didn't have. But anyway, I had a cooked breakfast a couple of hours before going in the chair. And I just decided that I wouldn't drink... I know this is normally very unhealthy, but it was a one-off. I wouldn't drink any water until at least 4 o'clock. And thereafter, I would try in a disciplined way just to have a, a decent but not excessive sip once an hour. And I thought, I think there's a reasonable chance that yeah. I'll probably be able to 
stick it out. I think it was Barry Gardner, the Labour MP for Brent North, who first noticed that I'd been in the chair for several hours and made reference to it. And that sat there like that. I won't say it caused a feeding frenzy, but it tended to cause several colleagues then to comment on my metabolism. <laughs> but what was quite amusing is that you know I think there are all sorts of really important things that could be reported about Parliament and about scrutiny and about the rights of backbenchers and things that we've done in Parliament the last few years that actually whatever you think of government of the day or particular policy make Parliament work somewhat better. And they get a little bit of attention from what I would call serious political yeah. columnists, but not a huge amount of attention. But I suppose a thing like you know, long stint in the chair, you know, is of some interest and it caused a degree of merriment amongst <laughs> journalists. And therefore it got far more attention than I expected. So I did this Syria debate and then I think there was an adjournment debate, which is the last debate of the day afterwards. And somebody came up to me from my office and said, you know, you've done the whole Syria debate, Mr. Speaker, would you now like to leave? And the deputy can do the adjournment. And I said, oh no, stuff that. You know, I've been here since the start of the day. I might as well do and say that I've done the whole day. Yeah. So, you know, is it something I try to do every day? No. But I, I rather enjoyed it. And it was sort of a mark of respect for colleagues because, you know, they've got strong views on either side. And I thought the least I can do is just sit there and try to ensure as many of them get called as possible and that I pay attention. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What, what strikes me often uh, about the way the Parliament is set up is that MPs will find any opportunity to buttonhole a minister or grab your attention, and Parliament seems set up so, the division lobbies for instance, part of the reason why a lot of MPs don't want to move to electronic voting is that walking through the lobbies allows them actually to see their front bench. When MPs see you, say, leaving the chair, going to one of your deputy speakers, just move to the toilet, ten minutes or whatever, or whatever it is you have to do, do you ever get MPs then sort of following you, going, here, John, can I just have a... So, yeah, you know, when you go out of the chair, people often come up to you and ask for <laughs> things. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yesterday... Somebody came up to me when I went to sign the Book of Remembrance for the Victims of the Holocaust. And a member came up to me to inquire about his chances of getting called at a particular session. And I won't elaborate on that. But, you know, he said, oh, you know, I'm really interested in speaking on X, Mr. Speaker. And seeing as I've chanced upon you... I just thought I'd mention it. Yeah. Then gave us a little nervous giggle, <laughs> and I didn't make a commitment. The usual course of action is not to make any commitment, but just to listen and say, "Look, I'll, I'll bear it in mind." But you don't want to get into a position where you've committed to call a particular person. You can't do that, right. and I don't. But do people come up and ask you for things? Oh yes, yes, and regularly people ask. I mean, this is a good thing. It's yeah. a really good thing. People have ideas about events they want to stage in speakers' house. I mean. We hold three or four events, usually for charities, in Speaker's House, which is my part of the building. 
every week when the House is sitting. And so, you know, I had an event last night for Ambitious About Autism, of which my wife and I are parent patrons. And we had an event for the International Centre for Sports Security, which is an anti-corruption initiative by a variety of people in professional sport. On Monday night, tonight we had an event celebrating relations between Mexico and the UK. You know, we have things all the time. And colleagues sometimes come up to me and say, oh, I'm involved with or a supporter of or a contributor to a particular charity or whatever. And it would be really good if you would allow us to have an event in Speaker's House. Overwhelmingly, partly for reasons of age of austerity and partly for reasons of propriety, they're not funded by my office, because if they were, that would be funded by you as taxpayers. Very occasionally there are things that there is perfectly good reason for my office budget to finance. But most of the time, what you're doing is you're giving the rooms and you're showing a presence and offering a welcome. And, you know, and if you basically like people and interacting with people, which I do, you know, it's rather fun and it's a privilege. You know, I'm just the latest inhabitant, Matt. That's the point of the office. You know, I always say, I mean, I'm not important at all other than, you know, I hope to my family, but... In Parliament, the office of Speaker is regarded as important. <laughs> yeah. It's an historic office. And I've got these rooms available, and they should be used to mark and celebrate great causes. And in particular, I'm interested in special educational needs, disability, the pursuit of social mobility, the fight against global poverty, LGBT equality, human rights, and so on. So I hold a lot of events in Speaker's House that are along... Well, we're all interested in that, right? I mean, we could all come round. Just, uh, <laughs> I think we're all sort of on the same page, yeah. I think house party at your house, that's all right. Um, it sounds as though this is on its way. <laughs> we're, um, you interact with people in, in various different forms, of course, and uh, one thing that has really caused us to stir, that has really raised the entertainment levels, I think, in Parliament, has been the significant number of SNP... NPs and their initial um, desire to applaud a lot, and it happens from time to time. Firstly, is applause such a bad thing in Parliament? <laughs> Do I think it's scandalous? No, careful, I'm careful. Real about this? Is it scandalous? You know, is it a great disgrace? No, of course it isn't. And you know, you'd think me even more weird than you've already concluded I am. If I were to say, yes, you know, it is scandalous or outrageous or despicable, I mean, that would be absurd. It's just that institutions have got their conventions, and in Parliament we've no culture of clapping at all. And the very fact that occasionally that has taken place, usually spontaneously, underlines why the rest of the time we don't have it. So, for example, when Tony Blair... It is last performance of Prime Minister's Questions. <laughs> the House rose to applaud in a way that it wouldn't normally do, but that was regarded as exceptional. And it was also, on both sides of the House that it happened, it was a mark of respect for somebody who'd served as Prime Minister for ten years, etc. You know, Preaching yeah. to the choir, eh, man? Yeah, no, I, rather, I rather thought so. Somebody who works for me, a fantastic communications head who works for me called Sadie, who I think is here tonight, and she competes with you in adoration. Uh, well. um, so anyway, it happened on the occasion of Blair <laughs> called it a day. And I think it happened when Anne Whittacombe launched a great attack on Michael Howard back in the Commons in Something 97. I think so. And it happened recently with Hillary Benn's speech and so on. But it's wow. very rare. And so, you know, I immediately reacted by saying to the SNP, you know, 
we don't have clapping here. And some people probably thought it was extremely pompous of me. And you know, why is Burkeo saying that? Why does the Speaker feel the need to say that? Well, I think I was speaking for a majority in the House in saying that. Now, you might say, well, you, know, you don't approve of the majority view. But I wasn't just acting selfishly or on the basis of an opinion of mine. I felt I was acting for the House. But I did say to them, look, you know, I will always stand up for their rights to question, to probe, to scrutinise, to challenge, to speak out, to put a contrary view, to test the will of the House, that is, to have votes on their own propositions and so on. They needn't worry they're going to be discriminated against or marginalised in any way by the Chair. All I would say is, if I respect you, I hope you'll respect the Convention. Now, other parliaments have no such tradition not clapping, and indeed have a tradition of clapping. So I accept it's entirely debatable. And if the House decided that it wanted to move in the direction of allowing clapping rather than here, here, you know, I've never forgotten one thing, whatever my detractors say, and that is that, okay, I have modest disciplinary powers, but ultimately... But by God, you use them. <laughs> I'm the servant of the House. Okay? So if the House says, well, actually, John, we've decided we want to do it differently we're perfectly relaxed about clapping, well then, you know, I accept that. Yeah. Has it affected your relationship with the SNP? That, or do you have quite a good relationship with them? I, I genuinely don't think it has. I think I have really good relations with them. I mean, you know, you can always test every proposition, Matt, in this day and age. And if you think, that, ah, you know, Berko's spinning us a yarn here. You know, he's <laughs> gambling, but none of them is here. None of the 56 MPs is present in the theatre at this moment, and he thinks he can get away with it. Well, the way you can test it, of course, is by inviting a prominent member of the SNP to be your guest, and you can perfectly legitimately, and probably will, put that question to that person yeah. and say, you know, is your relationship with the Speaker good, bad, or indifferent? But I reckon it's good... Because I do treat them with respect. I've got to know who they all are. I know their names and constituencies. And, and what I would say you know, is, OK, I have to be impartial between the parties. It's not for me to support SNP policy or oppose it, or Conservative policy or Labour policy. Or anything. I really do have to maintain an impartiality. But I think I'm allowed to say, and whether I am or not, I'm going to, <laughs> that the SNP have shown us something about group solidarity. And they really do turn up in quite considerable numbers for debates. They support and root and come out for each other. And they're not the embodiment of parliamentary independent-mindedness, which is something the Speaker of the Chair always likes to see. I don't think that's true. They're pretty much on message. But then, in a sense, they've had to be, because they've grown from being a minority to being you know, a somewhat larger well, to being a majority in Scotland, a much larger minority in Parliament. So, you know, they tend to stick pretty much to the party message, but a lot of them speak very well. They actually now respect the conventions. They're extremely courteous. And, you know, even though they want to be independent, they don't want to be part of the British Parliament, they're perfectly pragmatically, and there's no inconsistency here, taking the attitude, well, while we're here, we're damn well going to represent our constituents and speak up for their interests. And so, you know, I respect that. Are they the sort of people who get elected and then you don't see from one year to the next? No, the SNP are very good attenders, very regular contributors, and very dedicated supporters of each other. And I find them polite. Because their success now means that they get two questions at PMQs instead of what used to be, or pre-coalition, two questions for the Lib Dems. So Tim Farron sat up there... As a sort of technically as a party leader, 
but he doesn't really get the same t- treatment that he would have done, you know, a, a few years ago. No, no, absolutely. Are not. you sort of yeah. mindful of how do you have to treat him then? Are you sort of mindful that he's a party leader, but without any sort of commons protection in that regard? No, he does have some recognition. He is the leader <laughs> of a party, and they have eight members of parliament. But that is one eighth Great. of the SMP. <laughs> currently has. Now, because he is a party leader, he does get the opportunity from time to time to speak at Prime Minister's questions, including today. But does Tim, as party leader, have the same rights, the right to contribute as frequently as he would have done when the Liberal Democrats had far more MPs? No. And, And to put it very simply, and Angus Robertson, the SNP leader in Westminster, came to see me about this immediately after the election. The SNP are now the recognised third party, ladies and gentlemen. And you may say, well, what the hell's the significance of that? Well, there is a significance to it. It's reflected in Angus's, Angus Robertson's allocation of two questions at each PMQs, which the Liberals don't get. It's reflected also in their rights to be represented on select committees and on the thing which I know sounds really odd, quite important. They're represented, if they wish to be, and I believe they are, on the Speaker's panel of chairs, and the panel of chairs chairs legislation committees and debates in the subsidiary chamber of Westminster Hall. So for the avoidance of doubt, they are the third party. Fact. Okay, It's nothing to do with whether people like them or don't like them or pro-independence or anti. They are now much bigger than the Liberal Democrats. They're the third largest party, and they're treated accordingly. And that's the way it's got to be. It's got to be sort of axiomatic. It shouldn't involve speaker discretion, and it doesn't. We haven't touched yet on your sort of political journey as a... As, because you were... You, how long have you got? I mean, you know... Well, a few minutes. Um, <laughs> because you started, I think it's fair to say, sort of on the right of the Conservative Party-ish. Would that be fair? Oh, very much so. The Monday Club right. and things like that? Yeah, very, very right, right. Um, and then sort of came to the centre a little bit and then sort of certainly to the left of the Conservative Party. Firstly, I mean, the Monday Club is something that's now severed its links with the Conservative Party, something that you spearheaded. Um, as a member of it, what, what was it like in the time that you were there? Pretty surreal. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of that many things. I'm very, very, very deeply ashamed and always have been ever, ever being a member of the Monday Club. Probably a lot of very politically minded people in this audience, but in case there are people sitting here thinking, well, what's the Monday Club? Monday Club was a very right wing, anti immigration, pro Rhodesia, to use that old fashioned name for the country, faction and pressure group within the Conservative Party or on the sort of fringes of the Conservative Party. It doesn't now have any formal link with the Conservative Party at all, and it's vastly smaller, I think, now than it was even 30 years ago when I was a member. I joined in 1981, I ceased to have any involvement in February 83, and I formally resigned in February 1984, I think when my membership renewal was due, I wrote to the chair to explain why I wanted to leave, which was basically that I had, surprise, surprise, encountered racism and indeed anti-Semitism. Why on earth did I join? I'm actually a Jewish boy, I come from North London, you know, I went to school in Finchley, I think when you're young, you know, you can see things in terms of great simplicities and you can like a sort of systematised view of the world, an ideology, you know, either of right or left. My father was right-wing, he was conservative, he was a small business person. And somewhere along the line, as well as being a fan of Mrs Thatcher, 
I came to be a fan and admirer of Enoch Powell. But principally because I thought, here's somebody of great intellect and a, a terrific public speaker. And I found myself swept along by that. And Almost in a river. Persuaded, <laughs> persuaded that you know, perhaps it was a great threat to the integrity of the UK, which, frankly, there wasn't. And so I joined the Monday Club, which, of course, was in favour of halting all immigration, having a policy of repatriation and so on. And, you know, all I can say is if you believe in the rehabilitation of offenders, you know, I hope you can accept that 30 years on I have <laughs> served my penance and I'm fully, fully rehabilitated. But, no, I resigned in 84, so that's, what, 32 years ago. Yeah next month. But yeah, you know, I started very much on the right. I felt really weird being in the Monday Club, and I then started to encounter people who were not only anti-New Commonwealth and Pakistani immigration, but were anti-Semitic yeah. as well. And I suppose what that shows is when you realise you're targeted, you, know, you start to think, well, perhaps I ought to reconsider my position. <laughs> and I should never have made that stupid choice in the first place. But I think I have pretty consistently demonstrated an anti-racist attitude, yes. a pro-equality attitude for a very long time. Uh, and you were right to set out what the Monday Club is, because to, to keen visitors of Weatherspoons, Monday Club is simply a pint, a pint for five. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and what the hell's wrong with that? <laughs> um, <laughs> Ironic, if you, if you stay in Weatherspoons too long, you may end up holding the views of members of the Monday Club, but uh, <laughs> there's lots on that. Um, but th then you sort of drift, you, you kept, we're not drifted to the centre, but th there's, a, there's a pattern that are on left and right of people, young being radicals, and actually quite quickly, once they fresh out their ideological um, landscape, if you like, they become far more moderate, and then they settle there for, for quite some time, and, and you did. You... I, I mean, I, my first memory of you, I was involved in politics very young and got very excited about it. I remember you in that 97 to 01 era, uh, the Hague era, and you being a really passionate um, commons performer, very articulate and very sort of formidable, really. And I always thought, well, that guy's going to be a sort of contender for Tory leader at some point. Was that something that ever crossed your mind, wanting to lead the party? No. No, I never <laughs> wanted to be leader at any stage. And... A little bit. Or Prime no. Minister, maybe, at some point? No, I absolutely never wanted to be. I did, when I was young, tend to think in stages, you know, and to make ambitions up as I went along. I never had a sort of great worldview. You know, you've often heard it said, or some of you might have heard it said, that because Michael Esseltine said it, that he sketched <laughs> out on the back of a cigarette packet yeah. his game plan, you know, make a fortune by 30, in Parliament by 40, Minister by 50, Prime Minister by 55, sort of thing. No, I never had any such aspiration at all. At first I just wanted to get into Parliament. Once I got into Parliament, I think this is human nature. You see people around you and you feel, oh, you're, you're good, but you're not obviously more capable than I am. And so I was quite interested in being a minister. Why did I lose any interest in being a minister? First of all, I'm too much of a free spirit. I'm not a good team player. I wasn't disciplined at sticking on message. And, and I don't mean this rudely, although it will probably sound pejorative, but I served as a Conservative MP under successive Conservative leaders, William Hague, Ian Duncan Smith, and then Michael Howard, whom I didn't see as likely to become Prime Minister. I didn't think any of them was going to be able to secure the support of the electorate. And, you know, it made it much more difficult to stay hugger-mugger with them on everything 
on policy issues when I thought, well, you know, this isn't working. We're not going to win this way. And by the way, on a particular matter, I've got rather an independent and different view, and therefore I'm going to express it. So I think I fell foul of successive Conservative leaders, and I think I came to be regarded as off-message, a loose cannon, too much of a free spirit, indisciplined, uh, all of which was entirely correct. And so I thought to myself, I don't really want to be a minister. I don't like the disciplines that go with it. I don't actually think I'd necessarily be a very good minister. And I'm extremely unlikely to be invited to be a minister. And so I thought after a while, well, this isn't really working. I enjoy being a backbench member of parliament. So what I'm going to do is carry on pursuing causes that interest me, LGBT equality, constitutional reform, and the protection of human rights, action against global poverty and a miscellany of other things, special educational needs provision being enhanced for children and young people in particular. And then, if the speakership comes vacant at some point, I'll have a crack at it. You know, or at the very least, I thought to myself, I'll take soundings, which is what you would normally do. You, know, you wouldn't normally just stand with absolutely no idea whether you had any sport. You would ask friends to take soundings to detect the mood and see whether you had any support. And so I did approach people on both sides of the house and say, well, look, you know, what do you think? And over a period, it became clear to me I had some support. And I decided to go down that track. Why did I move from right to centre? Put very simply, I think you are influenced by election results. Mm. I don't think there's anything dishonourable about that. I was quite shaken in 01 by the fact that the Conservative Party scarcely did better than in 97. We got one more MP. We went up from 165 to 166. And the Labour majority went down from, I think, 179. To 165? To 166 or 165, yeah. <laughs> I, my money's on 166. But anyway, there you go. So, you know, I thought to myself, well, what's, <laughs> what's wrong? <laughs> and the answer is that... First of all, Labour was making more of an impression on the electorate. Yeah. You know, they were starting to create a new consensus, and I thought we had to react to that. I thought, well, you know, we did do lots of good things in government, but the gap between rich and poor was horrendously wide, and that does matter. It undermines social cohesion if there are these huge gulfs, disparities between the best off and the worst off. And you know, there are great areas of the country in urban Britain where there was huge deprivation and decay. And I thought that mattered. And there were public services that were, frankly, starved of resources. So, you know, I thought to myself, well, it seems to me that some of those issues have got to be addressed, together with the fact that for quite large numbers of people, rather worryingly large numbers of people, not necessarily in my constituency, but that I met around the country, there was a feeling, it goes back to Theresa May's observation about the Conservatives being nasty. nasty I think we were really rather unpleasant that we were intolerant, that we were hostile to young people, uh, that we harboured prejudices and I suppose it just caused me to think and I've always thought Conservatives believe in the free enterprise system and that's the best creator of wealth and the likely route to prosperity and enhanced living standards but I did think well I think there's no good just blaming the electorate We've lost in 97 and then lost almost equally horrendously in 01 to Tony Blair. We've got to think, well, what is it that he's doing that's right or winning support? And what is it we're doing that isn't? What is it we ought to do instead? So, you know, I'm not embarrassed by the fact that I shifted ground, but it does breed suspicion because a lot of people do stick to the same views for decades. 
And so the fact that in the space of a few years I shifted from very much the right of the Tory party to the left, you know, spawned a great deal of suspicion. But all I would say is you may think I'm flighty or unpredictable or you may doubt my judgment. My only defense is that everything I did was honest. So, you know, the idea popularized by one or two of the more down market, low grade, fifth rate scribblers who write for <laughs> newspapers, if they could be called such, that might be thought to be racist, sexist, bigoted, homophobic comic cartoon strips. <laughs> that I did what I did. Good you know, sports section, I mean. I mean <laughs> I didn't know the Daily Mail had a good <laughs> The idea that I did that you know, as part of a sort of Machiavellian plot to appeal to Labour MPs to vote for me to be speaker. I mean, this is a product of a fevered mind. But there, there was also suspicion, uh, indeed speculation quite wide, that actually after Quentin Davis crossed the floor... Uh, during 2007, I think, when Gordon Brown first became uh, Labour leader and Prime Minister, that you were sort of the next on the list. Were you ever approached by Labour? Yeah, not in a very formal way, but you do mix with colleagues, OK? Across the house, we were talking earlier, Matt was asking me about the tribalism at PMQs and so on, but some of you will know if you're involved in politics and others you may be hearing for the first time, that there's a lot of interaction between people across the parties. You sit on all party groups together, you sit on select committees, you travel together, and you mix with people from other parties, and people have a drink together, etc. Thank you for that uh, helpful gesticulation. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, people do come up to you from time to time, and from another party, they'll say something like, oh, you know, we think you're being unfairly treated, or, you know, your party's not using you properly, and you know, they're not a proper home for you. Or, or they'll come up and flatter you or compliment you on some speech you've made and say, you know, we feel it would be much more at home with us. We, we really feel, John, you'd be more at home with us. So, yes, there was a bit of that. Senior? I never felt tempted. Senior level figures? Yeah, some quite senior people. D- yeah. Downing Street level? No, it wasn't somebody from Downing Street. <laughs> no. But, no, but there were some quite senior people who approached me. And Cabinet said, level? And, yeah, yeah, there were some quite senior people. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't bite on it. I was never... A little maybe bit? Tempted. No, I was never tempted at all. And in fact, on one occasion, I did say to somebody, I'm not going to say who it was, it was a private conversation, but I did say to somebody, no, I don't want to do that. I've always felt that the Conservative Party best represents what heart I believe in, the free enterprise system, etc., etc. So I have no desire to change party. And How did Peter Mandelson take... What do you want to do? <laughs> <laughs> what, you know, what's your aim? You know, we, we think you'd be really good as... X, you know, holding X or Y or Z ministerial portfolio. And I said, no, no, but I don't want to be a minister. And one of these people said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be speaker. And he, he looked as though I was demented. <laughs> he looked as though he thought I was demented. Because I suppose most people in Parliament don't really want to be speaker. But, so no, I wasn't tempted at all. Quentin Davis, as it happens, yeah. is a friend. And he gave absolutely no indication of me. We sat on the International Development Select Committee together. He gave me no indication, perfectly properly. He had to preserve his... Secrecy, I suppose. He gave me no indication. I, had, I think I had a drink with him the week before. He defected. I had no idea he was going to defect. It's probably you that talked him into it. No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. No, no. He, he said to me, my dear John, I'm bound to say. I mean, I'm bound to say. I, I, I genuinely believe you and I got on extremely well. We got on extremely well uh, sitting on the uh, select committee together. I, I'm, I'm bound to say, I really think it's absolutely marvellous if you join me. I think it'll be a very good home for you. I think it'll be a very good home for you, my little party. And, and I adore Quentin, but I had absolutely no desire to follow him. And we remain friends. <laughs> we remain friends to this day. And he's no regrets about what he did, but I've no regrets that I didn't join him. And, and if you're asking me, did I sort of 
agonise over it and think, should I, shouldn't I? The honest answer is no. Okay, let's take some uh, questions from the audience. So I'll bring the house lights up. A microphone will come to you. If you just give us your name first and then ask the question, we'll try and get round as many as we can. Can we just have the house lights up a bit? Let's take the uh, oh, lady good. there. Hello, um, I'm Hi. Rachel. First of all, I'd like to congratulate you on choosing an excellent tailor, excellent suit. Oh, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> um, you've gone... Are you his tailor? No. <laughs> no. Right. Um, it's, it's actually Marks and Spencer's. Oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. Thank you. You've gone from the combatorial role of being an MP to the peacekeeping force of being a speaker, which seems to suit your personality. On the sad day when you stop being the speaker, yeah. which, what type of role will you seek? Something that involves combat or something that involves neutrality? Combat. Are you going to join the TA, John? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've absolutely no capacity for that sort of activity at all. No, what would I do? That's a very, very good question. I haven't got a definitive view about it. I think the two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, the short answer to your question is that I think in the future I have no plans at all to stop doing what I'm doing at the moment, and I hope the House hasn't got such plans for me. I've been elected for this Parliament, and I want to serve as Speaker in this Parliament. But I think in the future I would not really want to do one job. And I think if you've been an MP for a long time and you've pretty much run your own timetable... It's quite difficult, not impossible, but quite difficult to go off and do one job. I quite like to do a mixture of things. And I think because I'm quite passionate, I would want to be involved in championing causes. And so I suppose that's the combatant role. But, you know, do I think that I have some skills in bringing people together and you know, facilitating a dialogue amongst people, dare I say it, even chairing a dialogue amongst other people. I, I like to think that I've got some capacity in that regard. But the idea that I could lead an existence in which, you know, I'm not actively advocating something is just too implausible for words. I think it, there would have to be some passions being served. And, you know, I've got a number of passions, including sporting passions and a passion for higher education, and a passion for human rights, and a passion for equality. And although the Speaker generally is expected permanently to renounce political allegiance, I don't think in this day and age it is in any sense expected, and certainly not obligatory, that you forswear any sort of future campaigning activity. You wouldn't get involved in party campaigning, I don't think there's any sense in which you have to eschew any sort of involvement in a campaign. And I think I would want to be part of what I call worthwhile campaigns. But they would be very unlikely to be campaigns associated with one party. It would be much more likely to be appeals to values. OK. Um, John, I mean, the, uh, I hope the irony won't be lost on you, but I'd like to get in as many questions That's as right, possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I could ask the speaker to keep his contributions yeah, yeah. brief. Yeah. In the interest of accountability. Uh, the chap over there. If we could have one sentence questions and one sentence answers, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm Robert. How important is it that MPs agree to leave the Commons entirely for these vastly expensive repairs that need doing so that it can be done in just a few years at 
relatively cheaper expense and it dragging on for 30 years? And do you think they will be persuaded to do so? I think it is important, and I think they will do so, subject, if I may, to one caveat, and that is we should preserve a pop-up chamber on the parliamentary estate, or whatever is judged at that point to constitute the parliamentary estate, so that there is an incentive for those doing the work of restoration and refurbishment to do it to time. If we were simply to go in every respect away from the House and to preserve nothing on the parliamentary estate, it seems to me on the principle of the doctrine of the occupied field, the contractors are occupying the field and we could be out for a long time. And that's why I think it's important to have a pop-up chamber. But do I think that colleagues will move in that direction? I do. OK, the fellas over it. Uh, hi, my name's Chris. I love PMQs. Record it every week. Think you're fantastic. Um, but uh, Andrew Neil and uh, Ma yeah. demand answers to a question. Mr Cameron never answers a question. Are you too soft? No. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. If I complain at the non-answer, this is the point, then I become not the referee, but a player. And so whatever your frustration or their frustration, if they think the question isn't being answered, others can reach that conclusion. It's not for me to demand that the answer be given or that the response be done in a different way. The only respect in which I can and do properly intervene is if a minister starts talking about something completely different, going way off piste, or if the answer or non-answer is far too long. But it's not for and me to be And with that in mind... <laughs> <laughs> That's as good as it <laughs> Is there anyone on the balcony that would like to ask a question? Please shout if you can, if you do, because otherwise... Anyone on the balcony? OK. I've sent them all. There's no one on the balcony. Um, uh, uh, yes, the lady at the front. And then I'll take one more. Okay. Uh, my name's Julie. Um, you described a Tory party that you certainly at one point felt quite disillusioned with, with the different leaders. Do you really feel it's moved away from that position now? Or actually far more to the right? Ooh. I think all I will say is that <laughs> David Cameron knew what he had to do in a way his predecessors didn't to make the Conservatives electable. But beyond that, I don't think I should go. <laughs> I, I'm happy. Is Matt's in charge. I'm happy to take a few more okay. if people want to and if you can bear it, but okay. I don't want people to feel shortchanged. OK, I'll take three more. Um, <laughs> well, just because people have to get home and stuff. Um, <laughs> yes, the chap here. But, but I mean that in all seriousness, because people moan sometimes if they miss the train. Yeah. Uh, hello, my name's Russell. Um, the, the, the Speaker of the House of Commons is a very powerful position, and um, you were a Tory uh, MP. And in a world in the UK where... Boards of, um, members of boards of directors, housing associations, judges, conflicts of interest are paramount. Do you think going forward that perhaps the Speaker should actually be a totally independent person? Oh. I don't think the House will ever 
accept the idea that the Speaker should come from beyond its ranks. The House wants the Speaker to be one of its own. It wouldn't accept a civil servant or some person imported from some other walk of life. I mean, judge me in due course whether I'm right. <laughs> but that won't happen. Okay, straight answer. Um, uh, is there anyone over this side? I don't take any from this side of the room. No, no, no. Uh, okay, then the gentleman next to me, and then one more. Oh, I asked on the balcony earlier. <laughs> I was asleep. <laughs> what woke you up? Yeah, just before I answer the next question, can I just say, you, you just accuse me. And I'm very grateful to you for doing so. You accuse me of giving a straight answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, if you'll forgive me, I will share this with you. You know, the tradition of politicians not giving straight answers is not new. It is quite historic. And I think the finest example of the genre is Congressman Fred Schwengel from Iowa, a Republican congressman for Iowa in the period of Prohibition, who was written to on the matter of whiskey. And he wrote back saying... I had not intended to take a position on this subject at this time. However, I've always been prepared to take a stand on any issue, no matter how controversial. You have asked me how I feel about whiskey. And I will tell you, if when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and poverty, literally takes the bread out of the mouths of our little children... If you mean the drink that causes Christian men and women to be toppled from the pinnacles of righteous, gracious living into the bottomless pit of degradation and despair, shame, helplessness, and hopelessness, then certainly I am against it with all of my power. But. <laughs> if when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, <laughs> the philosophic wine, the ale that is consumed when good fellows get together, the drink which brings laughter to their lips, a smile to their faces, and the warm glow of human contentment to their eyes. If you mean the drink that causes a man to be able to magnify his joy and his happiness and to forget if only for a little while life is great tragedies, heartbreaks and sorrows. If you mean the drink the same, which pours untold millions of dollars into our treasuries to provide tender care for our little crippled children, our blind, our deaf, our dumb, our aged and infirm, and to enable us to build highways, hospitals and schools, then I'm all in favour of it. This is my view and I will not compromise. <laughs> We should end there, we should end there, but I will, because I'd said I'd take you, and you deserve getting in for having woken up, so, uh, very quick I'll, question, I'll, very I'll quick, really quick It was following on from Russell's question, my name's Mike, um, do you not have any sympathy for the poor people of Buckingham, who, for the last two elections, haven't been able to vote Conservative, Labour or Liberal Democrat, and probably in the next election, won't? I know you say you don't want to be independent, or there shouldn't be an independent uh, speaker, but uh, these people haven't been able to pick a political party for the last two elections. Ladies and gentlemen, in case you're not aware, this is because of the convention that the Speaker stands as the Speaker seeking re-election and the major parties don't put up candidates. I see that the argument can be run either way, and I know there are some people who say, 
you know, they feel disenfranchised because they can't vote for a party candidate. I think it is easier to identify the problem than it is to provide a solution. The House wants the Speaker to be an MP, but the House also wants the Speaker to be free of party. So if the House wants to change the system, I would accept that, but it hasn't shown any desire to do so. And I, I did, in fairness, increase my majority from 12,529 under that system of which you complain in 2010 to 22,942 in May. So, I mean, I've probably got lots of critics, but I must be doing something right. The only thing I do insist on, which is a different point I accept, is that I can represent people, and I represent them analogous to the way that a minister represents people. A minister speaks in the House only as a minister from the Treasury bench, from the dispatch box, not as a constituency MP. Ministers speak purely from the front bench. I speak in the House only as speaker. But can I facilitate the resolution of problems for constituents? Yeah, I get quicker replies from ministers than I ever used to get. <laughs> and, and I hold meetings with ministers and others if I need to. Very early on, I found that I was getting quicker replies from ministers. And the best of them was Jack Straw. And I said to my private secretary, I'm very impressed by the fact that I'm getting these speedy and comprehensive replies from Jack and other ministers. And my private secretary said, no surprise about that, Mr. Speaker. It's a considerable mark of shame if this... The minister so hacks off the speaker that the speaker demands to see the minister to remonstrate. So I said, oh, I see. I just sort of said slightly flippantly, I see. So if Jack Straw was Secretary of State for Justice at the time, if I'm annoyed with Jack, I go and see him at the Ministry of Justice, do I? He said, no, no, Mr. Speaker. In those circumstances, you don't go to see Mr. Secretary Straw at the Ministry of Justice. Mr. Secretary Straw comes to see you in Speaker's house for a meeting without coffee. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I would argue that I can, and I have had so many ministers in Speaker's house with me at short notice often and frequently in the company of constituents. So that's my only partial response, which isn't a complete response, but it's the best response you're getting tonight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the final question to the lady up there. Thank you. Um, my name's Pat Corcoran. Um, you made several references to your commitment around special needs provision, both for children and adults, and to education. Um, put my hands up to being the mother of an autistic man now and having, you know, campaigned for mainstreaming of kids into school and being very well aware of how provisions have not increased, actually, in the last 15 years in relation specifically to autism. And I just wondered, from your involvement, is there anything that you see from your position that could improve those provisions. My personal opinion, and I'd be interested whether you agree with it, is that one of the reasons that we don't make additional provisions is because we don't see these people with autism as being people who will be productive members of our society and therefore there's no commercial reward really in that investment. But I was just interested in your kind of national overview and your involvement, what your opinion is as to how we might improve that situation. Pat, can I just ask, are you one of John's constituents? Kingston, sweetie. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're probably represented by James Berry if you live in Kingston, I suspect. Yes, yes. Yes, you say. (laughs) (laughs) You don't seem so happy about it. I have seen, seen, friends, some improvements in provision for people with special educational needs, including examples of very good practice in relation to people on the autistic spectrum. But I think there's a postcode lottery. I think the system varies greatly across the country. And one of the difficulties I think you've got, and I've got, we've got, if we take an interest in this subject, we have a son on the autistic spectrum who's mildly autistic, 
perfectly capable of and benefiting from being educated in a mainstream school, but with support. One of the problems we've got is that we are speaking up for minorities. And although autism is a spectrum condition, with the logic entailed in the term spectrum, it's a spectrum or a continuum scale, there are people who misguidedly think, oh, you know, that child is autistic. And they say, oh, well, therefore it follows that he is or she is disabled. Well, that child might suffer a serious disability, but might not. And some people on the spectrum are cognitively impaired and, and have very serious challenges and don't communicate at, at all adequately and, and don't have great prospects of employment. But there are other children and young people who do. And it seems to me that you've got to cater to them all. And what it really comes down to is we have to resolve as a nation to think of the importance of protecting minorities for two reasons, ladies and gentlemen. I know this is rather a solemn way to, to get towards the end, but for two reasons. First, it should be part of the DNA of any civilised society that we are concerned about minorities who need our help. That's just a question of decency and, and behaving in a proper and ethical fashion as a, a government, a parliament, a country. But secondly, there is huge untapped potential, and it is massively against the interest of UK PLC if we cast aside substantial numbers of people in minorities, be they with autism or cerebral palsy or dyslexia, because we think, oh, well, you know, they're not able to contribute. This is madness. There are huge numbers of people who, with help, can be very, very productive members of society, but you do actually have to take the time and the trouble to help them. And perhaps, uh, Matt, I can be forgiven. This is what we call in Parliament shoehorning. Yeah? Shoehorning right. something in. And perhaps I can be forgiven. If Would I... you allow it? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> well, then it's allowed. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, perhaps I can shoehorn in. I think you can have friends in Parliament across the spectrum. And... One of my friends in Parliament, in the end, was somebody that... Which I'd... spectrum do you mean? <laughs> do you mean... Across the political spectrum. Political. <laughs> one of my friends in Parliament was somebody that I'd always very strongly disagreed with about almost everything, but I got to know him in Parliament and became friendly with him. And he was actually rather a supporter of mine when I stood for election speaker, and that's the late and great Tony Benn. And there is a thing, I've written, I think, by a Geordie socialist songwriter called Alex Glasgow called The Socialist ABC... And I used to tease Tony that, as delivered by him, this would, was how the socialist ABC would go. When did I was a little tiny boy, my daddy said to me, <laughs> the time has come, my bonny, bonny Ben, to learn your ABC. Now, daddy was lodge chairman in the coalfields at the time, and his ABC was very different from the Enid Blyton kind. He said... A is for alienation that made me the man that I am, and B is for the boss. There's a bastard, a bourgeois, don't give a C is for capitalism, the boss's reaction to greed, and D is for dictatorship, laddie, but the best proletarian breed. E is for exploitation, which the workers have suffered so long, and F is for old Ludwig Feuerbach, the first one to say it was wrong. G is for all gerrymanderers, Lord Muck, and Sir what's his name, and H is for the hell that they'll go to when the workers do the flame. <laughs> I is for imperialism and America's kind is worse. 
the J is for sweet jingoism, which the Tories all think of first. <laughs> a K is for good old Keir Hardy, who fought the working class fight, and L is for Vladimir Lenin, who showed them the left. All right. Mm-hmm. M is, of course, for Karl Marx, the mammy and the daddy of them all, and N is for nationalization. Clouty, <laughs> crumble and fall. O is for overproduction, which the capitalist economy brings, and P is for all private property, the greatest of all the sins. Q is for the quid pro quo, which will deal out so well and so soon, when half a revolution is shouted, and the red flag becomes the top tune. S is, of course, for sad Stalinism, which gave us all such a bad name. And T is for Trotsky the hero, who has to take all of the blame. <laughs> U is for the union of workers, the union will stand to the end, and B is for vodka is a vodka, is there any drink? That will bring no pain. W is for all willing workers, and that's where the memory fades. For X, Y, and Z, my dear daddy said, will be written on the street barricades. But now that I'm no longer a little tiny boy, my daddy says to me, please try to forget the things that I've said, especially the ABC. For daddy's no longer a union man, and he's had to change his plea. His alphabet is different now since they made him a labour. Phenomenal, Uh, what a wonderful way to end. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, as always, uh, you've been a fantastic audience. Next month, we have Liz Kendall, uh, and in March, Jacob Rees-Mogg. And uh, I'm currently booking a guest for April. In May, it'll be Tim Farron, leader of the Liberal Democrats. Uh, Oh, very exciting. (laughs) Very exciting indeed. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you're always a phenomenal audience, so thank you very much for your support. But please, give a massive thank you to John Burke. John Burko there, what an absolute hero. How on earth he managed to remember that A to Z um, piece. And his impression of Tony Benn was fantastic. I've heard as well that he does a variety of impressions, so hopefully if I ever get to interview him again, I'll get to hear a few of those. But what, uh, what fantastic company. And with every guest, obviously I get an impression of um, what they believe in and also what their character traits are. And John Burke is one of those wonderful people who is highly intelligent, is aware that he's highly intelligent, but is brilliant company with it. And sometimes I think it's impressive when people wear their intelligence lightly, someone like Alan Johnson. Equally, it is a pleasure to be in the company of someone who uses their vocabulary, who uses their uh, voice and their range, not only to inform but to entertain and... Uh, John Burke, I think, is one of the great politicians of the modern era. And there have been, actually, uh, attempts to unseat him. I hope that any future ones are unsuccessful, because he is superb. And it was a pleasure to do it. As always, thank you very much for downloading this, and please tell your friends and family, um, anyone you know, people on the bus or whatever, just pass on the word, spread it, and... um, Thank you, firstly, for, for downloading it. And I've realised that people come to this at different times. Occasionally I get messages from people saying, oh, I've just found the podcast, I'm working my way through them. So if you're a recent um, addition uh, to, to downloading this, thank you very much. And for those that have been there from the start, as always, thank you. Um, the forthcoming guest, Liz Kendall, has been recorded. That will be released very soon. And then Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, I'm recording uh, in a couple of days. By the time you listen to this, that may well have been recorded. 
Angus Robertson, the leader of the SNP in Westminster, I'm very excited about. Tim Farron, the leader of the Liberal Democrats in May. And at the end of June, we're having a special EU referendum post-mortem, whichever way that goes. So um, loads more shows to come. And just, I get something different from every guest, and I hope you do as well. And thank you for downloading. Cheers.